Hi, friends. Welcome to a special drop-in episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs, but I'm not really your host this week. Your host is Mike Kelsey. The music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Torin Wells. Today on the podcast, Mike continues the conversation he began yesterday with Jamar Tisby, and he and some of his closest friends sit down and answer your questions you submitted in a little Q&A format of the show today. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So, Mike, the show's all yours. All right. Well, it's Mike Kelsey, uh, one of the pastors at McLean Bible Church, and uh, I'm super excited uh, to be back on the podcast and to be talking about something that honestly is... Uh, it's kind of taken over headlines uh, for a lot of us, um, but more than just headlines, these are important issues that we need to talk about. Uh, so we're going to be talking about some serious issues uh, on the show today, talking about race and justice and all that kind of stuff, but hopefully we'll have some fun in the meantime. And so in light of that, I wanted this conversation uh, to just be raw and honest. And so I've invited some of my friends uh, who uh, happened to all, we all happen to be together in the same church. Some of us are leaders in the church, uh, some of us are not. But uh, this is kind of like all of y'all who are listening right now, like you are getting an invitation to the cookout. Like this is, these are the casual cookout. This is the group chat conversation uh, that you may not normally have access to. Uh, but uh, I want to introduce you uh, to some of the folks that are going to be uh, spending some time with us today. So. Hey, what's going on, y'all? Um, Eric, it's good to be here. And are we telling them what we're bringing to the cookout? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. You got to say, that? all right, give me your name. <laughs> give me where you're from and where okay. you grew up. And, uh, and then, you and tell, yeah, what are you, it's a cookout. So what you bring to the cookout? All right, let's do it. Okay, Eric, I grew up in Hampton Rose, Virginia, and I'm bringing plates to the cookout. <laughs> you bring, oh, you're that, that guy. guy. I'm that guy. Yeah. You're the guy yeah. that's the little brother. Plates. Right. Because you, you remembered plates. that you had to get something on your way. Exactly. And you that's stopped true. at CVS. Yeah. You got this, man. And you, bought, you got some plates. Ask See, we, we understand know. each other. You're that guy. <laughs> All right, right, cool. I'm married to that guy, guys. I'm Janique. I grew up in a very small town, Winnebo, North Carolina. Shout out to Winnebo. And um, I don't want to say what I'm bringing, but I'm going to, and I'm kind of embarrassed, but I'm just going to go with it. I'm bringing watermelon. You're, yes, we need watermelon. Wow. Mm. We so need watermelon at the cookout. That's need, what I'm bringing. We do need watermelon at the cookout. <laughs> we need it. That it is not just a stereotype. That is a necessity. Yes, yeah, this is true. All right. Wow. All right. Y'all going to judge me because I don't eat watermelon, but it's all good. Where you from? Uh, Where you from? Well, my name is Musa. Uh, I am from... Hi, well, I grew up in Hyattsville, but my family's from Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. I'm bringing the jollof rice. Let's go. Oh, Y'all know nothing about that. I'm bringing listen, that jollof rice. Don't start no fights because there's yeah. other Africans from Nigeria. Yeah, but that's Ghana not real. That just that's not real jollof. Don't really have jollof rice. That's not real jollof. The that's only real jollof is in Sierra Leone. All right. Let's all go. Right. <laughs> I am married to the Sierra Leonean. I'm Christina, and I'm bringing mac and cheese to the okay. cookout. Mm-hmm. Mac and cheese. Mm. Well, I'm Ashley, and I'm married to Mike, and my husband's going to say this is not true, but I, he, he would say I'm going to bring like a fancy dish to the cookout, Yeah, but really- Risotto balls. Risotto balls. Not really because we're always late to the cookout, Facts. so we literally always bring dessert. Well, everybody wow. needs dessert, you know it's what I'm true. saying? And yeah. it just happens to be one of those things where you don't have to be there on time for everybody <laughs> to enjoy it. Well, all right, you, you, all y'all are invited to the cookout, and you're welcome to bring whatever you want as long as it is seasoned appropriately. So <laughs> yes. uh, we are, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump, uh, jump right in here. And I wanted to ask you guys, obviously, we've had unrest in our country and all over the world. There have been protests. There have been protests that have turned into riots. Uh, social media is, is just on fire right now. All the news headlines are talking about this. And what precipitated all of this is, I mean, there's so much, right, that precipitated this. But over the last six weeks or so, two months, uh, we've had Ahmaud Arbery who was killed, Breonna Taylor who was killed, George Floyd who was killed. And those are just the most kind of prominent situations over the last two months. But there have been others uh, who uh, have been killed. And these happen to be black men and women who have been killed by, in the case of Ahmaud Arbery, by two white gentlemen, a third white guy who was driving the car. Um, Neither of them uh, were police officers, but one was a former law enforcement official. And then in the case of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, these were police officers. And so I just want to ask y'all just honestly, when any one of those scenarios, whether it was Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, when you first 
you know, in the case of Ahmaud Arbery or George Floyd saw the video, if you watched the video, or when you first saw the news kind of breaking online, what were the thoughts that ran through your head? What were the feelings that you felt and how are you processing that? My first thought was with Ahmaud Arbery, just not again, you know? I know for some people it hit them like, this is, it, it felt like extra crazy, but for me, it didn't feel extra crazy. It was just disappointing that I'm seeing another headline that I've seen before, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, that brings up a point, and I still want y'all to answer how you felt, but that does bring up a good point where a lot of people have said this this feels, you know, uh, different. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, go, I, I would love for folks to hear y'all answer just the initial question, just how you felt. But But I do want to talk about does this feel different to you? Why does this feel different? Why is this different? But uh, Janique, I think you're getting ready to share. Yeah, just to go back to your first question, how did I feel? I mean, I it was just a reminder for me to not coast. I mm. um, sadly feel like I was becoming comfortable. It hadn't happened in a while. And so I know that this is a thing that happens, but it was a reminder that these things still happen, that these things can happen to my husband. Uh, And even as I think about the future of my two sons, that this is something that will likely continue happening. And so I was uh, confused, angered, really, you know, as we say, I was feeling all the things. Yeah. I think one, I think one of the things uh, for me was, it was just frustrating thinking about the fact that, you know, thinking pastorally about it, like, man, it's not only going to be about what I'm feeling, but having to process yep. what the church is feeling mm-hmm. and how we're going to, uh, how we're going to look at this. And I, I, and one of the crazy things for me was sort of being a little bit happy that I did not have to be at church mm. wondering what mm-hmm. the person next mm-hmm. to me mm-hmm. is feeling. Are they thinking that they're not going to mourn with me until... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they find out more facts. You well, know, yeah, am so I going to have to deal with that? Of COVID-19 right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. nobody's actually physically gathering in their church. So that's one of the things that makes this unique is when everything broke, there was not, there, there hasn't been those awkward moments where you show up to church and have to kind of navigate that awkwardness in person. Yeah. So that's that kind of what you're saying. Like it, yeah. it was a relief that you didn't have to do that. Yeah, it was just yeah. a relief not having to sort of figure out in my heart, okay, what's going on with the person next to me? Can they, I, if I was to share this, how would that be, you know, how would they understand that? How would they mm-hmm. take that? And so that part, but I, I think that why this is, this one felt kind of different was uh, just because people had nothing to do but pay attention. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone is sitting at home. Um, everybody is sitting in front of a computer. If you're not doing a Zoom, you know what I mean? You're looking at what's going on and you had to pay attention. And I feel like that that made a difference to me. Mm-hmm. I felt really heartbroken at first. And I wanted to just be able to escape and to grieve. And I think when I realized it was different was when I started getting a lot of text messages and people started reaching out and I felt this obligation to respond to people, but I wasn't ready. Mm. And I felt the weight, like the exhaustion of when you see one of these happen, unfortunately, you know, the process, like emotionally, you have to prepare yourself, not only for, you know, if there's a video, the video being shown, but then also like, there's going to be, charges or there won't be charges there's going to be a trial or there won't be a trial and all of the emotional energy that comes from waiting and hoping that justice will happen and most times it doesn't right most times it doesn't happen so I the temptation for me was to slip into that hopelessness Mm. like this is going to end badly again and I just want to go somewhere and hide and not have to Mm. really process it when you say you were not when you say you were not ready why did you feel like you weren't ready to engage in those conversations? Because let me just say this, and I didn't say this in the very beginning. So the, everybody that's, that's talking right now is black. And, and, and the reason for that is because we, we wanted, for those of you that are listening, wanted to kind of give you just an, an honest opportunity to just kind of hear how some African-Americans, uh, not just in our country in general, but maybe some of the African-Americans that are in your friend circle or that are in your church might be thinking through and processing these things. And we do not represent all African-Americans in the country. Uh, All of us come from different parts of the country. Some of us, like Musa from Sierra Leone, come from different parts of the world. And and that's a whole different, you know, immigrant experience. But I think what you're saying, Christina, about 
hearing the news and not just being able to process what you're seeing personally and privately, but having to kind of gear up to engage in those conversations with other people. So when you say you weren't ready, what like what do you mean by that? I think I was definitely grieving the loss of a person that I knew could have easily been somebody that I was related to. Mm. So even though I do not know this individual personally, I watch the news and I see Musa. I see him going out for a run or I see my boys grown up. And so there's that personal connection to it. And then also grieving the broken system. And so feeling like, and to Ashley's point, here we go again. I want to be somewhere where I can just lament and be in a community where I can just get it out. And yet... I'm inundated with people who want a response almost or who have questions or who want to talk through it. And I just was not ready. I needed time to to figure out how I felt about it and to process it personally first. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions that, that, that we got, and thank y'all for those of you who are listening, many of you sent in questions. Uh, and so one of the questions uh, that we got was along those lines, uh, Christina, and any of you can feel free to kind of give your thoughts. But as we're talking about how we first processed just these different situations, one of the questions that came in was, is it okay for me as a white person to reach out to you as a a black friend um, to uh, ask you questions and to try to learn more about what we're talking about today? How African-Americans process this or, or trying to connect some dots. Like, is, there's a lot of talk right now about, um, hey, don't put the burden of your education on you know, your black friends. How do y'all feel about that? Because all of us got those text messages immediately and yeah. those DMs from yeah. people checking in and, hey, what do you think about this and that kind of thing? How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, when we're talking about this situation, man, I think uh, many of us are going through collective grief and I think you reach out to a person just as you would reach out to someone else who's going through grief, right? Like, if somebody has a friend who passed away, you're not reaching out to them to get educated, right? You're initially reaching out in order to express solidarity, to make sure that they're okay, right? And to, uh, to check in on them. But I, I do think that the level that you are able to do that is a matter of your relationship with that person, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you don't have an existing relationship with someone who is maybe more affected by the things that have happened, uh, I would be really hesitant to reach out. And my initial correspondence is to pepper them with questions, mm-hmm. especially because we live in the age of the internet. Like, a lot of these answers you can get on your own. Mm-hmm. So, And I think, you know, going right along with that, like, don't think that when you ask the question that, you get to get your answer on your terms. Mm. Because the reality is you just don't know where people are in the process of mourning this person's death. We, I think black people, a lot of times collectively, we, we take these experiences as if it was our family, just because there's a history behind this stuff. You know what I mean? And it has affected a lot of us. Uh, a lot of us have stories, you know what I mean, where we were really close to being that guy, yep. you know. And so I think you can't expect to uh, someone to answer your question when you want, how you want, at the moment you want when they're mourning. Musa, mm-hmm. you along those lines, man, and hopefully this is not just putting you on the spot, but I because I know you, I know you've you've been in situations right where you could have been that guy. Yeah. Um, and so, like, would you mind just sharing, man, like, because this isn't for you and for so many people and for so many black men, right? This isn't just like theory or whatever. This is, this is, has been real experience. How have you experienced specifically, and, I, and I'll, I'll just say this, I want to be careful here because when we talk about these issues, uh, we, we're not trying to paint with a broad brush. Um, and so I just, some of us have family who are law enforcement, who are police officers, uh, and so the overwhelming majority of police officers are doing their job and trying their best to do their job well. Uh, but there are certain circumstances, and some of which have been captured on video, thank God, uh, where we see, right, that just like in any institution, there are some that are abusing that privilege, that honor, that, that power and responsibility. So, man, how have you experienced that uh, personally? 
uh, a story that comes to mind is uh, uh, one time we were actually driving out to the airport. It was late at night. It had to be about 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. We're trying to uh, get to the left lane so we can make a turn. The person who was driving didn't know the area, so he sort of made a quick move to that to the uh, left lane. And I guess we cut somebody off. And this guy pulls up next to us, asks us to roll down our window, and uh, starts spitting out a bunch of expletives, uh, asking us if we were drunk, what's wrong with us. Next thing we know, we see a gun come up. Mm. Um, and he's, uh, you know, we're like, look, we don't want no problems. We're just trying to get to the airport. You know, apologies. We're trying to move on. And he's like, don't put your window up. Leave it down. And so at this point, I grew up very different from a lot of the people that were in the car. So I'm angry. Mm. Um, and I'm basically trying not to say anything because my mentality is usually that, you know, I have rights. You mm. know, um, like the signs that we've seen up, I am a man. And I don't feel uh, I'm not comfortable with you saying anything to me or my friends. And I, it's just not OK. But he pulls out this gun and is basically like daring us to pull up to put up our windows or to drive away. Uh, before he left, and mind you, this guy, plain clothes, plain car, he pulls out his badge mm. uh, and then basically speeds off. Mm. Um, but it's it's just one of those encounters that reminds you. And, you know, by the way, we're on our way to a mission trip. We're trying to get to the airport wow. to go on a mission trip. Mm. And so a lot of times people think that this is happening to guys with a record or they want to wait and see mm. to find ways to justify the injustice and the killing of a person. Uh, when a lot of times it's just somebody who they assume has no power to do anything. Mm. It's the assumption that uh, that we have no power because we're just a bunch of young black guys. Mm. What did you, I mean, I don't know if y'all talked about it when dude pulled off. So he flashes his badge right before he pulls off. Um, what did what did you feel? What did y'all feel in that moment? Did y'all did y'all talk about it in that moment? Was it just silent in the like what? You we know? actually never talked about that. Mm. To this day, mm. that conversation has never been had. And my brother-in-law was in that car. Mm. Two of my groomsmen were in that car. We're great. We're good friends, mm. and we never talked about that incident. Why mm. do you think y'all haven't talked about it? That's traumatizing. Mm. You know. Um, now, me and one of the other people in that car, we had been in a similar situation where we had been profiled and, you know, they asked him to do all of these things to prove that he wasn't drunk in the car, basically trying to find a reason, uh, you know. And so we had been through these things and you just, I don't know, you, you'd rather just move on. Mm. You'd rather move on. And so when I look at the videos that come out, trust me, it doesn't capture how often these things happen. Mm. It really doesn't. Mm. And some of the people who have experienced these things are not the guy who lives in the hood of the street. It's the person sitting next to you in your congregation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me back all the way up for a second. Um, and Musa, thank you for being willing to share that. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it is traumatizing. And a lot of these situations are traumatizing. A lot of people are writing about, even if you haven't personally experienced it, watching these videos is traumatizing for anybody that watches them, but especially when it feels close to home, when it, when it feels like, yo, that dude right there, it looks like my brother. Mm. You know, he looks like my, my cousin. Uh, but, but this also brings up what I think makes this conversation so difficult a lot of times. Mm. And it's because like a lot of us in different kind of racial groups, ethnic groups or whatever, have been brought up to understand race in different ways. Mm. And so uh, even just when we and how we learned these racial categories is very different in the way that it shapes us. So I wanted to ask you guys, when was the first time you remember being aware of your race? And so just for the listener's sake, let me just clarify. When I say your race, I'm talking about your race as in the kind of racial categories that we use here in the United States of America. Those were intentionally designed, constructed, it's a hierarchy of people, of groups of people based on the color of their skin. And so that's why if you're listening right now, Musa's family is from Sierra Leone, but that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? He's yeah. black mm -hmm. in the United States kind of racial system. So I know that our racial categories kind of blur all of those distinctions. But what I'm asking is, yeah, when do you remember when you first realized that you were 
black. Mm. Yeah. I think for me, I mean, I can't tell you specific when, but it was early, mm-hmm. right? Because I know my mom, I mean, we didn't live in no colorblind house. Like, she mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that we knew that we were black, right? Because she knew that the way, she knew the way the world perceived us and how that would kind of hit us. And so she wanted to step in front of that and to say, no, like, you're black. Your, your black is beautiful, right? Like God made you um, so that her affirmation could be the counteraction to what I would already see in the world from its mm. advertisements and its heroes and all of that. And so she saw it as a responsible thing to do to alert me of that and then affirm me in that. Mm. So, yeah. That's really cool that you learned about your race from your very own mother. Mm-hmm. I uh, sadly learned about it from someone who was not my mother. And this happened as early as second or third grade. I remember a white friend at school just simply asking a question. Hey, Janique, don't you wish you were white? And so I had seen color before, but I realized then that uh, my color was uh, you know, thought of as lower than another additionally i remember finding out some of my white friends had hung out a weekend previously these were all friends that i had hung out with uh, but they had all been invited to a birthday party together and so learning that i wasn't invited there was a message being sent there that hey janique you're good enough for us to hang out with at school but you're not good enough to come um, enjoy the festivities outside of school so that was been second or third grade well, let me just say, first of all, I'm just, I'm just impressed, you know what I mean, that you had white friends growing up. I didn't have no white friends growing up. <laughs> I did, I did. Like, Very small period. town. I feel Winnebago, like I was North probably Carolina. a grown man, a fully <laughs> formed adult. Yeah, like, I didn't grow up in a, in a very diverse mm-hmm. context. Like, it was all black everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, you, you, I, I appreciate it. It wasn't all black everything where I grew up. Man, I appreciate that. Like, you are, I appreciate it. I mm-hmm. actually, growing up, thought black people were the majority. I was grown up in PG County, and my my brother told Hold me that. Hold up, once you can't just skate yeah. past that. Just for listeners who are not aware of 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 the the great land that you just mentioned. Mecca. Come on now, PG Mecca. County. What is that? Prince George's County, uh, the home of uh, Kevin Durant. That's right. Y'all had And Wakanda, yeah, Wakanda's <laughs> up the street. People you know call I mean? Prince George's uh, County, Maryland, uh, Wakanda. I like to call it the kingdom of black people. Uh, <laughs> Prince George's County is pretty legendary because for a long time, may even still be true now, uh, it was a, a county that had the highest concentration of black wealth in the nation. Yeah. Um, and uh, so Prince George's County, shout out uh, here in the D.C. metro area. Uh, but yeah, so you, you grew up thinking black people were yeah, the majority. You know, um, quote that great prophet. I remember Marvin Gaye used to sing to me. He had me thinking that black, black was, was thing the to thing be. to be. <laughs> and that was my experience. You know what I mean? So I, I had no idea. I just thought, yeah, we're the majority. So, you know, we're good. Uh, until my brother got called the N-word at school. Mm. And he had no idea what that meant. Um, mm. Being in an African home... A lot of times our parents didn't give us context around a lot of the things we saw. So I thought like, I was like, man, this dude that comes on TV every February always going to jail, he must be a horrible criminal. Mm-hmm. That was Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. So I had no idea what was going on. Wow. You know what I mean? Um, but when we first heard that word and my brother found out what it meant, uh, I was with him the second time he heard the word and it didn't go well for the guy who said it. And mm-hmm. so it was one of those things for, for us, an awakening of... Uh, sort of what the world really was like out there. Hmm. I grew up in the colorblind house that Eric <laughs> was talking about. Um, I have very few early childhood memories, but finding out that I was black is probably my, one of my earliest memories. I grew up in a uh, Jewish community in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And we moved here. When we moved here, I turned five. So I went to school and immediately I was in, I went from being around all white people to all black people. And so... The kids at school said, you talk white. And I was like, of course I talk white because I am white. Like, what is the problem? Um, and I found out very quickly that I was not white. And I think the traumatic thing for me was all I had learned in school about black people was slavery and civil rights. And so now I, realizing that I was a part of that, it didn't seem like it was a positive thing. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it was actually a really bad thing. Um, and then two years later, I'm the one who told my brother that he was black which mm. was also a very traumatizing experience for him. But yeah, I found out from friends. It's cool. Well, 
<laughs> I mean, I've shared this story publicly before, and I like don't really want to say it because it sounds like I'm being dramatic, but I'm really not being dramatic. This actually happened. I also don't have a lot of like childhood memories, you know? So sometimes I'm like, is this? Okay. Anyway, I was probably in like third or fourth grade. And I remember because I also am a native of Prince George's County, Maryland. Ooh, yeah. One more time for the people. Prince the George's back. County, Pretty Girl County, yeah. um, a DC suburb. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, but I also grew up in like all black everything. And it wasn't until I was. I got moved to a school to be like in the, t- the talented and gifted program. And so then I, it's like the first time I'm in a classroom where I'm a minority. Mm-hmm. And so at least the first time I remember and this, this kid in the class, I don't remember what happened, but he ended up saying like something happened and he was like, you dumb black B. And it was just like, what? Like B, B like, word. Like, like B, like honeybee, like best friend. <sighs> like, <laughs> No, no, like the okay. B word. You trying to give me cuts? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I just want to make it. I just want to make sure we understand what was said. Yeah, and so anyway, like it was just the first time I knew like black people were a thing. I don't know if I can really adequately articulate this, but like I didn't know it could be a positive or a negative thing. Mm. Does that make sense? Like it was like, oh, you're using that word to degrade me. Like mm. that's a part of the insult. <laughs> Mm. And that was the first time I was like, oh, okay, so black people, this is not always like amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting as we listen to our stories. And for me, the first time I, I remember uh, realizing I was black was just a conversation with my mom. And I think, I think I must have heard her say or heard somebody say we were black. And then I was like, no, I'm brown. Because that was, is what makes the most right. sense. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And, uh, and her having to sit me down and explain to me that I'm black. And what and Eric, to your point about the conversation with your mom, one of the things that it, I, I, one of the themes I often hear with, with black people is that that conversation is typically preemptive. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, like most black people did not find out they were black in like positive circumstances. It was either... Mm-hmm. It was imposed on you from the outside and it was a negative experience where you realized you were other Mm. in Mm. whatever context you were in or it was your own family or something like that that was trying to prepare you for the realities that you might and likely will face as a black person, as an African-American person in the United States. And you got to understand that our like the civil rights movement, it, that's not, that wasn't 400 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Like we just got the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Mm-hmm. So our parents were very much so, they had a very close, a very near like memory of some of the things that that's just history for us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even to your point, man, I think my mother do that, did that because my mother and my father very much felt that growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, my mother came from a sharecropping family. Mm-hmm. Like her wow. parents were sharecroppers in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. My dad used to tell us of times that he would ride his bike in his neighborhood and uh, people would throw water, uh, like water bottles filled with urine at him because mm-hmm. he was a black kid in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was the reason why my parents, I mean, whether it was right or not, wanted to preempt that. Now, one of the negative facts of that is that it left me bracing for that. Yeah when I would go into the world, right? Yeah. Like, I was just like, okay, when is this going to happen? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's interesting, Eric. I actually have a question. Like, how does that inform the way you think about what you want to talk to your children about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Our experiences are different, but the same in a lot of ways from our parents. What, what, how does that make you think through that? Actually, I think it frames it in, the, in terms of, I want to have these conversations with my children, but more in a positive light. Mm. Because I live in Arlington, Virginia. And let me tell you straight up, that ain't PG County. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it is a majority white, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing that I want to infuse in our kids is that I want them to know like, and to see positive black role models outside of their family, That's right? Yeah. And so I want to help them know early on, yes, you are, yes, you are different in that sense. You are black. Mm-hmm. And here's some positive role models for you as well. And so I think my parents, they saw it as I need to inform you about what negative things going to happen to you and let me infuse you with positivity. Mm. And I think for them, it's slightly different. 
If, yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so that so that's good, and 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 I, I just find that it's important for us. Part of the reason, and uh, if you're listening, part of the reason why I wanted to to have this part of conversation, and and you guys, you you experience this too. We are in a culture right now that is so hostile. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 to some degree, it's it's the chickens coming home to roost uh, for just so much history that we have in our country, but then also. Uh, just some of the different incidents that have uh, been happening. And so what you see is not that it created tension, but it's almost like this volcanic pressure that's been underneath the surface. And when these incidents happen, it just, it, it, it's just the, the release valve is just moving. It just, yeah. it just comes up, yeah. uh, you know, above, above the surface. But what happens in that environment is it makes it very difficult sometimes for us to listen to each other. Mm for us to hear why would you why are you so angry mm. when you see a video of an Ahmaud Arbery you know what i'm saying like how come that can't be just for you just one individual where something unfortunate happened like why does it bring up all this stuff and how in the world could it have led to such massive you know uh you know protests so but but that uh that does bring up this this question like Although even in what we're sharing, some people listening might think, man, that my experience is so different. I, it does seem like that there is much more unity around the, the fact that racial injustice is a real thing. It feels like there's much more unity in that right now. And, and the George Floyd video of that police officer in Minnesota with his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, like that seems to, I, I don't fully understand it, but I mean, everybody, Nike, all major companies, everybody is making statements. It, there is a tipping point that, mm-hmm. that we haven't seen to this point. So a lot of people have said, this feels different. Like, does it, does it feel different to you, this kind of situation that we're in right now, kind of where we're at? Um, why does it feel different? Uh, or, or to you, are you like, no, nah, this don't really feel different? Listen, I could tell you it was different when all of my white friends were talking about yeah. it on social right. media. Yeah. I've never yeah. seen so many angry white women over <laughs> this issue mm. in a good way. Like, I felt like some of my friends here who have never spoken out about this type of thing mm. had a very righteous anger. Mm. I knew yeah. it was different. Mm. because of who was speaking out. And that was part of the tension for me, even in my grief, was I knew that I needed to process, but I have this slew of text messages and DMs, and it was very clear to me, this is a moment, Mm. and somebody needs to be emotionally ready enough to respond because Mm. the attention of the world is only on these types of incidents for a very short amount of time. And so to your question earlier, Mike, about whether or not we feel that it's okay to reach out to like a black friend with questions. I think in the church, at least for me, my response is if you're, you're my brother or my sister in Christ, mm-hmm. I have a responsibility to you. Like I am tethered to you in love and I want to be able to educate in any way I can, to help in any way I can. I understand from the secular point of view, people who say it's not my responsibility to educate. Mm-hmm. But I think that in the church, it has to be different because we are called to a different standard. And so I want to be, even as I was grieving, I was like, okay, Christina, we gotta do this, but we gotta get through it because I want to be as helpful as possible to the body. And if this is a moment, and if God is doing something, cause he's the one who changes hearts, then I wanna be prepared to, you know, to contribute to that. Yeah. I don't wanna take us all the way off the topic, but I wanted to ask this to you, Christina, cause it's something I'm working through right now. How do you balance like personal health in this as you continue to grieve and then being willing to address the conversation with friends? Like, how are you doing? That's such a good question. I think there are a lot of people I did not respond to right away. Like, I just couldn't. I didn't watch the video. I knew I couldn't from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Musa in our house is much more able to, to see and react to those kind of things. I just, I couldn't. So I took a break. I also talked to my counselor about it. Um, and it was a while before I posted anything on social media. And that for me, I needed that time. I needed to process it before I could talk about it. So, mm. mm-hmm. got to say something to that too. And I mean, I know my pastor, I, I, I just got to go here. I'm glad that you said what you said because we're in a church, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we respond differently to that. And I was thinking just how patient Jesus is with me. 
Mm. When he when we're having the same conversation over and over again, mm. right? And so even an answer for me to your question is the way that we're able to keep going and have these kind of conversations is this, is that God always gives his strength when he gives his commands. Mm. That's a good word. Yeah. And so if God has called us to be patient in these kind of conversations, you're not going to run out of patience. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. God's going to give you what you need to keep going. Come on. Um, so I'm yeah. going to run a lap. <laughs> Eric's going to send out not his familiar paper. with the black church uh, <laughs> right. you want to explain what run a lap means you are not talking about uh, running tw- how long is a marathon 22 I don't know I've never run one I agree praise 26. the Lord praise the Lord it's Keep a form preaching. of worship so alright so on that note like for people who are listening because we got there were several questions that came in about this and Eric you touched on it a little bit but I want to flesh this out a little bit more to be helpful to people that might be listening who would say like so here's, here's, here's Anne uh, asked this question. She said, I've been on my journey of soul searching and introspection on this topic for several years. Recently, with all that's going on, we've heard over and over, don't ask your black friends how to help or how to educate yourself uh, because it's not their job and they're tired. And Eric, you kind of talked about that in sure. terms of your first response to somebody who's grieving isn't going to be, can you educate me? But I want us to flesh it out a little bit more because she said... Thankfully, I've been following people I love and trust and respect who have provided resources and answered questions. My question is, for someone just starting, how would you have them proceed if they really have no clue what to do? So for the person that, A, just respond to that, like all of y'all, all of us have gotten those text messages and those questions. So what advice, in addition to what Eric said about just like, in some ways, kind of respect the grief, but you know, and check in before you just, you know, unload with questions. But is there any other advice you can give for that person in terms of how they can engage maybe their African American friends who are around them? And then also, just in general, if you're trying to grow in this, like beyond just your black friends, like what do you do? Well, it's funny because I was talking to um, one, of, one of our good white friends um, who asked, you know, she was saying, I'm starting to feel like I want to speak up, but I don't know what to say. And, you know, she's feeling like she's at the beginning of her journey. And I, I told her this, and I think this is what I would say to anybody. If you're going to approach somebody to this, let's say you have a friend who's, you know, a person of color and you guys have never talked about these issues before. So you're kind of like nervous. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to say the wrong thing. They're never going to talk to me again. <laughs> I think if you approach the person with humility and honesty, I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So the people who have reached out to me and have said like, I'll be honest, like I actually don't have the first, I have like no idea how to like even broach the subject with you. I can appreciate that. You know what I mean? Like I can empathize with that. Um, And then the humility to say like, I need, I'm ignorant. (laughs) Because I think in this culture, it's actually like, you know, in the cancel culture, it's not okay to be ignorant anymore, right? So if you're ignorant though, you know, be honest about that. Don't try to act like you know when you don't know. Right. So I think to if you have a real relationship with somebody, you should be able to say like, hey, I really don't know where to start. And hey, if this is too much or this is offensive, like I will go to somebody else, but I just want to know, like, can we talk about this? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to start. And I think even when I'm hearing you say uh, humility um, in terms of the person who's coming and asking the question, there's some humility on my part as the listener. Mm -hmm. Um, Like uh, Christina said, it took me about maybe three or four days to reply to some of the people that were reaching out to me as well. But one of the things that I had to process personally uh, is how do I respond when I'm feeling this way? Two people who came to mind for me were uh, Paul and Jonah. Paul wanted to go to a particular group, but God had him go in a different direction. Jonah did not want to go to a group. God made him go in the direction he didn't want to go in. Mm. In both of those cases, Mm. what was required of them is obedience, right? To be able to, um, and I know for me, even if I'm discipling somebody, my expectation is not that you are at, you know, level 10. You know what I mean? There is some walking with a person that's going to have to happen, and so, and I know for me personally, growing up in an African household, uh, fun fact, my African-American studies teacher at community college was David Chappelle's mother. Mm. Really? That was the place where I really began to understand 
Uh, was she hilarious too? She was super <laughs> humble. We did not know who she was. Wow, we had no crazy. idea. Somebody said it real low key, and you know, she confirmed. And mm-hmm. so that was pretty amazing for us. Um, but that was the first time that I started to gra- grapple with, you know, my personal biases as mm-hmm. an African who did not understand the struggle that black people have gone through. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? So for me, I approach it with that humility, knowing that, look, I know I didn't start. Um, I was forced to have to figure some things out pretty quickly, but I didn't start knowing all the things that I know now. And so being real humble in terms of how I even respond to people when they're asking questions. Mm-hmm. But can we keep it real? So I think those are really good points. However, one of the things that I love about white people, generally, this is a stereotype warning, but it's a good one, <laughs> is that white people research everything. So there's a whole case for why you should not vaccinate your children. And moms could tell you, mm-hmm. this is what the studies say, and mm-hmm. you shouldn't do it until this time. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we will read books about what our children should be eating and how many servings of things they should be getting. So I think when it comes to racial issues, oftentimes, at least what it feels like is the first impulse is, mm-hmm. I don't know anything about race, but I have a black friend. That's good. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and I don't, and I want to be helpful, especially in the body of Christ, yeah, because you yeah, are my sister, sure. mm-hmm. but also you can Google, you can research <laughs> race and faith. And you can read some books. And I think those types of conversations you might actually find will be much more fruitful and informed mm. versus, you know, coming and saying, what, what should I do? How can I? It's like if you yeah. come with a more informed view, mm-hmm. I think that sometimes you will find that it'll be a much more engaging and dialogue. Like, can I ask the question? Yes. Okay, because I, I can hear this being asked. Okay, so I'm a white person. I'm on Google. Okay, everything you find on Google is not like legit, Fair. right? Fair. So how do I know which black voice to listen to? Like what, where, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I almost feel like, do I want to point people to Google or do I want to say like, here's like three people, maybe follow them. Yeah, that's good. Safe mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, but maybe that's wrong too. I don't know. Well, let me tell you who not to li- uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, but that's also a good point because I think I think it's important to hear what both sides have to say, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Because I think part of the problem with where we are right now in current events and politics is that these talking points are created by people who have a vested stake in a certain narrative. And mm-hmm. so if I'm going to be pro anything, I need to understand what the opposite side of that is. And I certainly want to know what God says about it kind of as part of my framework. So I think that's a good question, Ashley. Yeah, I think it's a good practice regardless of who you're listening to. Even if you are listening to the pastor that gets up and preaches in your pulpit every Sunday, you need to be listening to things critically and holding things up to the word of God. Does this match up with what scripture says to be true? I said what I said. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Mike drops. All right, so since we talked about church, and I realize not everybody who's listening uh, some people, everybody's in different places spiritually. Some people listen are Christian. Some people are exploring Christianity. Some people are not Christian at all, maybe not even interested. But a lot of people that are listening, you know, are, are Christians and maybe be involved in a local church. And, and, and y'all have brought up those dynamics, right, of, of our relationship to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But the fact of the matter is these dynamics that we're talking about, I mean, we've been talking about kind of justice issues when it comes to the police and how that affects us and all of that. But even those racial dynamics that are more interpersonal or organizational, mm-hmm. like those same dynamics exist in the church. So I, was, I don't even remember who I heard say this, but somebody was given an illustration around this and I thought it was hysterical. This, is, this was uh, a, a Latino guy uh, who was a pastor, and um, I can't remember what his name was, but he was basically telling the story, and he was talking about, I don't know if it was a true story or just an illustration, but he was saying how he came to his church one day, and there was this uh, Asian woman, older Asian woman, I don't remember if she was Chinese or Korean or what, but this older Asian woman, and he was talking about how like she, in order, like the way she shows respect and like greeting is like she bows, but in like the Latino culture, you know what I mean? Like it's super expressive. He was like, we hug. And so he was like, he went in like for a hug and then she went in to bow and it was like super awkward. 
And so the next go around, when they were about to come back to church, he was like, nope, she's not getting me again. You know what I mean? Like, I want to meet her where she is and I want to whatever. So he was like, when, when I see her, I'm going to make sure I bow. She's an, an elderly woman in our church and I want to honor her in that way. He said, the next time I saw her, like I, I went to bow and she came in for a hug and I headbutt her in her nose. Oh. And so I don't know if that joint is a real story or not, but the whole point of him telling that story is he said, we are going to get this wrong sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there are going to be yep. times in our relationships, mm-hmm. period, our friendships mm-hmm. with our coworkers, but also as we're talking about our relationships with one another in the church, it's going to be some times where this is clumsy. It's going to be some times where we say the wrong thing. There's going to be times where we hurt one another because of what we say to each other or say, you know, with an earshot of a person or something that we post on social media. And one of the dynamics that I often give, and this will be helpful for some people who are listening and some leaders in churches that are listening, is uh, sometimes, this is difficult for all of us. And so there's two dynamics I, I want you to speak to. One is for the white person that might be listening who feels very, very nervous about engaging in this. And so I, I, want, I, I want you guys to give some advice because we got several questions about that. Uh, but I also want you to, to maybe help articulate the experience of some people of color, especially in predominantly white churches. Mm-hmm. And the analogy that I often give is oftentimes we can feel like welcomed guests in predominantly white churches. I think sometimes we feel like this in just predominantly white spaces in general. Uh, but it's kind of like being at a bed and breakfast, right? Uh, everybody is nice. Uh, you can use all the amenities. Uh, you get a, a, a seat at the dinner table. You can eat the food. You even get a bed. You get a room. But the menu is already predetermined. You don't. Your pictures are not up on the wall. You don't get to... Uh, decide what paint color goes on the wall. You can't move. You can't decide like I'm not into, I don't know, interior design, what's rustic, you know, whatever. And I want to go for more. My, you can't, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm out of my depths now, right? You get the point though, right? That sometimes as people of color, and I, I'm, I'm saying that in specifically uh, people of color, because it's not just African-Americans. A lot of times it's our Asian brothers and sisters and, and those of Arab descent and all of that where we come into these spaces and yes, people are nice, hopefully, but it still can feel like it's still very clear that this is a foreign space to me. So Mm -hmm. how have you experienced that or how have you observed that uh, in the church? Mm. Man, I I think one thing that I've found is this, is that when it comes to those type of interpersonal relationships, if it feels awkward, there's typically an indication that you're doing it right. And so I, I do think what has happened within the church is this, is that we have stated that we want racial justice, racial reconciliation, but we're not willing to embrace the awkwardness that surely comes along with that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I mean, I think the first part of your question was, what would you say to, like, you know, your white brothers and sisters? I, I would say, like, like Ashley said earlier, if you come into the conversation humbly, right, and willing to learn, expect to feel awkward, and that's fine, right? Mm-hmm. And then honestly, for me, um, part of my experience has been this, and, and, and I'm sure that many other people ha- have experienced this as well. Often, I feel like welcome guests because often I, I want to be careful when I say this, often I assume that the environment that, I, that I'm in can't handle the full me, mm. right? And so, like, I pull back. I don't give yeah, you the whole thing. That out. What do you mean the environment I'm in can't handle the full me? Like, what do you mean? Okay, so um, I, I, I came on staff in my church about five years ago, right? And our church is predominantly a white church, right? And so for me, I'm constantly thinking, oh, man, can y'all take all of Eric, all the black parts of me, like <laughs> the things that I like? The interest that I have. Well, like you um, come into a church and everybody's cracking Seinfeld jokes. Exactly. And I'm like... I don't. Now, this was a turning point for me, though, when I was able to translate that and realize, oh, Seinfeld to you is what Martin Martin is to me. As soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, we're good. We're good. But but I I think as African-Americans, we often have always had to assimilate into dominant culture Mm. so we get good at it. Yeah. And so when you enter into a culture in which you are a minority, what happens is like, okay, these are the parts I might need to edit about myself in Mm -hmm. order to fit in. 
Wow. Right? Yeah. Um, but I do think when it comes to this conversation, African Americans and all minorities need to be courageous enough to bring their full self to yes. church. Mm. Yeah. Because you're robbing people, right, of what we're trying to do when you always have to feel like you have to temper yourself in order to enter the conversation. Mm. Right? And so, um, so I just want to say that just for a second, just to help people who are listening, flesh that out. When you say your full self, so we just use kind of easy examples around pop culture, sure. preferences, and that kind of thing. What are some other examples of bringing your full self into your church? I'll give you one. It's risky. We, we said it earlier. You were, um, Musa, you were actually saying earlier that you were actually glad that like, man, we were kind of out of church. Mm-hmm. because we didn't have to wonder what the next person beside us would feel about our grief. That's one of the issues. Like, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you anybody, any African-American who's been versed in American history, um, I don't want to say all, but most of them were grieving, and they were connecting these cases to a larger whole. Mm-hmm. You often feel like when you enter white spaces that you have to temper that, mm-hmm. right? Not necessarily because you're trying to set somebody else at ease, but because you're trying to make sure that you're safe. Mm. Like mm. you don't want to pour out your heart in front of people and all of a sudden they're just disregarding your grief, mm. right? But I think one of the courageous things to do in this is like, no, I, I, for us to really be the kind of church that we want to be, I have to bring my full self, including my grief, to the conversation mm. and risk that. Understand that if somebody tramples on my grief, the Lord Jesus Christ, he won't. Mm. Mm. That's really good. Can I just add to that too? I think, yeah, that's, that's a perfect example, I think. Um, like just on those Sundays after an event like, you know, George Floyd, like you do as an as a minority, you brace yourself, mm-hmm. you know, before coming to church. Now, I'm not saying, maybe that's not true for everybody, but most of the people I talk to, that is our experience. And you come in and it's like you said, you're afraid to weep at, at different points because people who are grieving don't want to have to, convince you that they should be sad Mm -hmm. i shouldn't have to convince you that my tears are justified i just want to get through the grief you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i think for so many of us like we've done that for so long and you you're right you do get used to it i think as a minority coming into like all white spaces you're like trained at a young age i think to to scope the space out first to kind of see like the lay of the land and like what type of white people are these? You know, is it okay for me to uh, speak a certain way, to mm-hmm. tell certain jokes, to, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. um, from the light stuff to the deeper stuff of, of, you know, what you brought up, Eric. So I think that is, you know, I've, I've been in a majority white church for 15 years now, and it, is a, it, it makes um, these events that much more traumatic when, somebody sees you sad a well-meaning you know white brother or sister and it's like in the moment like but don't you think that like they're, they're basically challenging the notion that like this is a any form of injustice mm-hmm. don't you think you want to get into a political conversation with me huh. i'm crying and you want to have a political conversation mm-hmm. that's where you feel like this wouldn't happen to me if i was in a in a like all black space right now mm-hmm. and that contributes to that feeling of a welcome guest. In those moments, you don't feel so welcome, but you're definitely not part of the family. Right. You know? Well, and I, I mean, that's real. And first of all, let me say, if you just, if you want to get a lay of the land and figure out what kind of white people are these, um, then just, just taste their potato salad preferences. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it really tells me everything I need to know. You know what I'm saying? About what, what kind of folks, but on a serious note, like what you, uh, what you're saying. So, this is just real. So I'm one of the pastors in our church, and and we one of the things that we've been doing during COVID-19, y'all are in the church, so you know this, right, is we do these Facebook Live prayer times at noon every single, uh, every every day, right? Mm-hmm. And right after Ahmaud Arbery was killed, I had to do, I, it was just, I was scheduled to do that Facebook Live prayer time. We just happened to be we're in a Bible reading plan and our prayer time is based on that Bible reading plan. We happened to be in a Psalm where David was going crazy hard. You know what I'm saying? It was one of those, uh, you know, Psalms where he's like calling fire of judgment down. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was kind of perfect, you know what I mean? For how I was feeling in terms of crying out for God's justice. So I'm in this kind of, you know, upstairs in the church um, and record that Facebook live. And as soon as I was done, I just sat there 
I finished the broadcast. I turned off, I closed my computer. And after I finished leading a time of prayer, of lament for his murder and, and, and all of the emotions that come up, I just sat there. And what I do, I text y'all. I don't know, I can't remember if it was all y'all. I think mm-hmm. I text this whole group and said, y'all, I'm sitting upstairs in the church right now because I don't, I'm not emotionally ready to walk downstairs mm-hmm. and to walk through the hallways and have to like bump into mm. other people in our church who just watched that broadcast. Mm-hmm. What was that? Like, I think it was what you were just talking about, Ashley. Like, it's not that those people are racist and that like they, it's just, there's an emotional rawness yeah. that you often feel as um, as an African-American around these incidents, but it's not just limited to black people. You know what I mean? Like our Korean uh, brothers and sisters, Chinese, you know, uh, just, just, I mean, we can just talk about uh, just Latino brothers and sisters uh, from just all different, you know, parts of Latin America and South America and like all of that. Like it, it's, it is, it is a challenge sometimes emotionally and relationally, sometimes even spiritually, to bring our full selves into these friendships. And I think a lot of our, our white friends and white brothers and sisters in Christ would, would feel that too in this conversation that we're talking about, the topics that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think some of them wonder, can I bring my full self mm-hmm. into this yeah. conversation with yeah. you? Right. Because I don't fully connect all these dots. You see this one isolated incident and that brings up all this history and I don't see it that way. And And what if I don't think that there's this whole conspiracy of systemic racism right now? Am I allowed to like bring that up? and? I think a lot of, you know, uh, I, I see some of y'all nodding your head like, no, no. <laughs> but that's part of the challenge, right, is, is us being able in relationship. And this is so, this has to be true in the church mm-hmm. based on the nature of the church and our relationship as those who have been saved by God's grace and brought into God's family. But man, don't we desperately need that in our broader culture? where we can't even reasonably and charitably disagree with one another long enough Mm. to discuss sensitive, important issues and to grow as a result of engaging in conversation that stretches us. Yeah, man. Man, to your point, one thing that Tim Keller said a lot, he talks about how the covenant of marriage is strong enough to hold you together when there's disagreements and you're not seeing these on the same page. And and I'm thinking that could also apply to like the covenant of church membership, Mm -hmm. right? Like that should be kind of this covenant in which like there's this grace that you're able to like give to one another, even when you are on different sides of the aisle on the issue, right? Like Mm -hmm. the same examples that you said earlier. Um, And that's the prayer. And I I know one thing that we were talking about earlier is the church shouldn't be the kind of church that enthusiastically cancels each other. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Like we should be an environment of grace. And being an environment of grace is that you actually give people the opportunity to mess up and bounce back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And grow. And grow. Yeah. And, yeah. Grow. and so in that grace, yeah. I mean, just same thing with the gospel, right? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves us enough to look us right in our face mm-hmm. and tell us the truth about ourselves. That's right. Not be politically correct, not try to spin the reality of the situation, but looks right at every single one of us and says, you are loved more than you could possibly imagine because you've been made in the image of God. However, you have sinned and rebelled against God. You have broken the law of God, intentionally rebelled against the character and the will of God and God being a just God, God who cares more about justice than any of us care. God not just desires justice for the fact that we've sinned against him and we've violated those he's made in his image. He promises that justice. Mm -hmm. He promises that every single one of us because of our sin will stand before him in judgment and we will rightfully stand condemned. And at the very same time, he tells us that truth, but it's redemptive truth because he then invites us towards a different way of life in a different relationship with him that's only found right through what Jesus has done for us. Like Jesus's death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the grave. And Jesus says, I did that for you mm-hmm. 
so that you could be forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future. And now you get to step into this covenant relationship that's built on grace. And there's room now for you to stumble and to fall, but to find mercy and grace in your time of need to turn from that, mm-hmm. right? And not immediately like to flip it in the light switch, but to turn from that. We call that repentance. Mm. And to, and to experience transformation and experience change. And we get the opportunity, I think, to model to one another in our relationships in the church, mm-hmm. but hopefully to model to the world, not a soft, you know, grace that just sweeps truth under the rug, right? Because we've done that in American history in the church before, yeah. right? Where we just sweep racism under the rug and slavery under the rug. And all. No, 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 no. This is a grace that actually is strong enough to call out sin, to call out injustice, mm. but it's also a grace that says, and, and I want to be helpful towards not just solving the problem of injustice um, in any specific situation, but also offering those who are complicit in it, who perpetuate it, mm. offering them a way to repent and turn from that. And I think we have an opportunity to to like display that kind of truthful graciousness, you know, uh, to to one another. Let me um, before you start, yeah. I just want to cue the Hammond B three organ. <laughs> and um, you can't see us, but we're passing an offering plate yeah. right now. We're gonna or, sew. or let's start strumming the acoustic guitar, <laughs> right? Fair, right? Fair. right? Yeah. All right. All right, let me, uh, this has been so great, y'all. Um, but uh, the podcast is called uh, That Sounds Fun, and uh, which is, you know, it might be like a, a hard left, but you got to tell me, what do, y'all, what do y'all do for fun? What, do you, what are you doing for fun these days? Taking care of kids. Taking care of kids. <laughs> hey, listen, dog. <laughs> that's that's so the real deal. Holy shit. Taking care of kids. Man, I'm a sneaker collector, man. So I don't care if it's COVID or not. I'm connect. I'm collecting these sneakers. You, you're gonna get these sneakers. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get them that's drops. That's what I do, man. That's what I love doing. Tell them what you're wearing right now, dear. What are I am uh, wearing Jordan ones, uh, Royal Toes. They are looking uh, Royal pretty, Toes. Pretty the shoe nice. game is yeah. tough. They can't see it right now, but just trust me, y'all. Yeah, yeah. The shoe it's game tough. is it's very, nice. very thorough right now. Yeah. What are y'all doing for fun? I've been into this new thing called hyping. It's where you. Love you so much. Why are y'all already laughing? You didn't even hear. But it's where you go up to people who are just doing average things, you know, having lunch, going for a walk. But you hype them up like, "Ooh, girl, you better take that step. You better eat that cheeseburger." What is wrong with you? It's so fun. Oh, Enneagram that, that seven. Enneagram seven. That also sounds dangerous. Like right. it is. It is. I'm gonna tell it's you fun, something, though. Unique. Chrissy's been uh, really into hyping as well. She likes pulling over uh, when people are jogging, rolling down her window and talking about, you better go, girl. Yes. I'm like, see, that's hyping. Serious? I'm okay, not the wait, only one. That wait. is dangerous hyping, <laughs> no, though. No, it's encouraging. So I've been working out a lot. A few of us have. And I actually do teach our boys when they pass a runner to say, go, you can do it. Because it helps. <laughs> When you're struggling, it really helps. No, I'll say okay. this: the world needs more hyping. Oh, yeah, but, but here's it's the thing: not not false hyping. Like Janique, oh. out of fun, this is what she'll do. If a person can't dance, she will hype them up so they can feel like they're dancing. That's just well. Oh, wow. Why would you that's do that? That's not that's loving. Just, why would you do that? People need to feel good about themselves. Mm, Thanks, right. guys. Are you also recording? Can somebody hype hyping? me up right now, though? Nope. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. What y'all doing for fun? Bro, I'm boring, man. I read books for fun, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're boring. Wow, yeah. Your library is very impressive. It I is, though. Say. It's pretty you're dope. Smart, it's color-coded. Facts. Yeah. Wow. She yeah. put you on blast, bro. Yeah. Your books are color-coded. But that was all my wife's. She said, listen, <laughs> if she, if I want to keep my books upstairs, you got to color-code them. You got to make it match the, the ambiance mm. of the environment. It looks nice. So, oh, wow. It does look nice. That's I nice. acquiesced. I feel like it's really hard to have fun right now. Am I the only one? COVID-19? No? COVID? I don't know. Like, Are you an Enneagram 5? I don't feel like... Yeah, I'm I'm an Enneagram 4. We like to sulk. So, I mean, I have fun critiquing my husband. (laughs) Mm. Wow. As her husband, that sounds fun. Um, (laughs) No, what else? Okay, I actually, like, accidentally got into the idea of doing makeup tutorials. (laughs) Except that they're not really good at all. (laughs) 
are so good. Wow. But it is fun. See, Janique and see Janika Christina are faking like right now, like they haven't taken some benefit from my tutorials. They've been really I great. actually oh, she have. Has. Okay, she's okay. talked about it. At the, yes. At the okay, so that is what is I'm this doing on for y'all's fun. Little Marco Polo thing. Yes, Can it we is. Do a That's whole what I do for Annie fun. Annie F Downs. Can we do a whole podcast on? Marco the Polo. thing that's taking over the world, Marco Polo. It's a thing. This is going to be the demise of civilization. It is. Yes. Possibly. All right. Well, y'all, thanks so much for, for being willing to come on and, and talk about these issues. I hope it's helpful for uh, folks that are listening. Uh, this is that moment in the cookout where don't nobody want to leave, but the person whose house, you, <laughs> where you at, is, is just kind of giving y'all hints like it's time for y'all to go. So go make your plate. All right, we'll go ahead and shut <laughs> this down. Oh man, how grateful are we for that conversation? Thanks to Mike for hosting this week and for those beautiful words. Make sure you give Mike a follow on Instagram and Twitter, all the places. Tell him thanks for being on the show. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs all over the place. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. We are back on Thursday. Mike has one more show for us this week, and I'm just so grateful. A really important conversation with Mike and another black pastor and a white woman sitting down together and talking about what do we do next. It's really, really important. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss Thursday's show. As we continue our week where the host is better than usual. Hey, if this show meant a lot to you today, what a great one to share. What a great way to start a conversation with your friends by sharing this conversation with Mike and his friends. So I'd really encourage you to do that. Mike, we're really grateful for you. And we look forward to you guys here in Thursday's show. So you guys go out or stay in and do something that sounds fun to you. I'll do the same. And we will see you back here on Thursday. <laughs>